In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to every word that he spoke. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus, and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Which, as any teenager will tell you, means this. If you're listening to a sermon, you're exempt from doing chores. Actually, no, that's not the point. The point is almost the opposite. If you're doing chores, you should be listening to a sermon. Now, Martha found herself in a position very similar to Abraham. Abraham found himself hosting God. God was on his way to Sodom in order to save whom he would when Abraham showed him hospitality, loved and served his Lord and Master. Now, Martha finds herself with the Lord coming, not to save whom he may, but rather to go to the cross and in his flesh bear the sins of the whole world. And what does she want to do? Show hospitality, love and serve her God and Savior. But it all goes sideways, doesn't it? Martha's hospitality fails. Why? We read in verse 40 that Martha was distracted with much serving. In the Greek, that word distracted means she was pulled away from, torn away from. Well, pulled away and torn away from what? It might help you to know that the house of Martha, like all the houses of those times, were very small. If there were two rooms, they were connected. And she, as she's preparing the meal for her Lord and his disciples and her sister as well, she's listening to the word of Jesus. She's hearing Jesus as she serves. When suddenly she is pulled away, torn away from hearing Jesus' word, focusing instead on her serving. Over she came with the cups. And what does she see? Her sister sitting there doing nothing. Over she comes with the silverware, and what does she see? Her sister over there doing nothing. Back into the kitchen she goes, boiling water spills over on her hand, and who does she see? Her sister over there doing nothing. And finally, she pops. Her fair button had been pushed. Do any of you have one of those? <laughs> I think we're born with it. No sooner than the little kiddos can even talk, what do they say? That's not fair. Uh, so, we, so much more grown up and spiritually mature, say effectively the same thing, but it never stops there, does it? And it didn't for Martha. 
That's not fair. And as she got to be thinking about that, well, whose job is it to enforce fairness? And who is sitting there letting this atrocity of injustice take place? Who but Jesus himself? So she becomes angry not only with her sister, but angry at the Lord. This is such a perfect example of what Paul writes. The good that I want to do, I do not. Because what does she want to do? She wants to serve and honor her Lord. And instead, what does she do? Yells at him. Drags him into this whole domestic debacle. Lord! Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Ha, that's familiar too, isn't it? I think we've all said that a time or two. I'm the only one doing anything around here. Why won't anyone else pitch in? Tell her to help me. Make it just. Make it right. And how does Jesus respond? This is such a beautiful thing. Martha, Martha. And saying her name twice, there's a sense in which he's calling her back to herself, to who she really is, to one who believes in Jesus and loves Jesus. Martha, Martha. And the tender way he speaks to her is practically an absolution. He's not going to rebuke her. He already forgives her. And that is precisely the grace and mercy that God has for us on account of Jesus Christ. You know, he doesn't even reckon our sins against us. He doesn't even count them. So there he is, not reckoning, not counting Martha's sin. But he loves her enough to admonish her. He loves her enough to point out what's going on. So he says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Now, what do we know about this Martha and Mary, her sister? Well, we know they have a brother named Lazarus. We know that after this event, maybe even before, these three are very good friends with Jesus. They support him along the way in his ministry. And when Lazarus, Martha and Mary's brother, gets sick, right away they call Jesus. Jesus does a strange thing. He's told that Lazarus is going to die any time, and he delays. Well, Lazarus dies, Jesus goes on his way, and who comes out to meet him but Martha. And he talks with Martha, and who's waiting for him? Mary. And he talks with Mary. And of course then, as he sees Mary and the rest weeping, he's moved and deeply troubled in his heart, and he goes to the tomb, and he says to the dead man, Lazarus, come forth. By the power of his almighty word, he speaks, and that corpse comes to life, and Lazarus comes out, hopping up and down, still wrapped up in the grave clothes, but out and alive. Prior to that, he had said to these women, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, he said to them, your brother's going to rise. They said, we know, Lord, he's going to rise on the last day. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. What we've seen of Jesus in his earthly ministry is just 
just scratching the surface. We haven't seen him in his glory. We haven't seen him in his power. He gives us a glimpse when he says, Lazarus, come forth, and out he comes. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the resurrection and the life. When I come back in full power, in full glory, the, the bodies are going to fly out of the graves as if drawn to a magnet. Everyone's going to be alive whether they like it or not. The only reason the resurrection is an event is because it's first a person. And when Jesus, who is the resurrection, who is life, comes in his full glory and power, all the dead shall rise. Incredible. Incredible. So he makes quite an impact on them. And Mary in particular, as he's drawing near to the cross, Mary takes out costly ointment, costly perfume. She cracks the bottle and pours the whole thing out on his feet. Judas, of course, is appalled. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Ha, we still hear that Judas voice all the time, don't we? How dare you do anything nice for the church? How dare you seek to honor your Lord? That should be given to the poor. Ah, let's recognize that as the Judas voice. So she pours this out on, on Jesus' feet because she knows something. She's grasped something, probably not fully, but at least more than the others. She now realizes what Jesus has come to do. He is going to the cross. So she anoints him for his death. And that Holy Week, those last days of Jesus' life, as he's going into Jerusalem and into the temple and saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing before going to the cross, every night when he goes home and sleeps, he's going to Martha's house. So, Martha's problem wasn't that she was serving Jesus, and serving Jesus is bad. That's not the case. Martha's problem is that she let her serving of Jesus pull her away from Jesus. Her attention drifted to others. What's fair and not fair? Why is the Lord happening? Why is the Lord letting this happen? That's where her attention went. Now, I've been told by some pastors that um, to do this is to sear your conscience. And what was the other thing? to damn your soul or something like this. They get really, they get really uh, worked up about this. And, and what is it that they get worked up about? The comparison of Martha and Mary as patterns of discipleship. But I'll say, I don't think it's going to do any of those bad things to you because Jesus is the one that brings up the comparison. The very last thing he says is, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see, in these two women, we are to see a pattern of, of hearing. How hearing can go wrong when we are distracted or pulled away from that hearing by too much serving. How hearing goes right when we sit at the feet of Jesus and meditate on his words and his words alone. So, Jesus himself says, take care how you hear. We get the idea sometimes that if we just show up at church, I've done it, I've checked my box, that's it. And then sometimes we sit there, uh, twiddling our thumbs or thinking about what we're, going, what we're going to do later in the day, and then we leave the church and go, well, I didn't feel very fed. Take 
care how you hear, Jesus says. To the one who has, even more will be given. And to the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Take care how you hear. And the large catechism puts it this way. I'm going to read it for you. It's so great. This is Luther. We allow ourselves to be preached to and admonished, but we do not often listen seriously and carefully. Know, therefore, that you must be concerned not only about hearing, but also about learning and retaining God's word in memory. Do not think this is optional for you or of no great importance. Think that it is God's commandment who will require an account from you about how you have heard, learned, and honored his word. And right in tune with this, St. Paul says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Richly. In Greek, the, 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 the verb is let dwell, as if, as if uh, living in the same house as you. Let the word of God be your roommate, be your family member, so that when you wake up in the morning, you go to sleep at night, there it is. Let the word of God dwell richly in you. So what we see in Mary is a pattern of one who is listening learning, committing to memory, Jesus' words. And what we see in Martha is one whose intentions are very good, but who gets pulled away by her serving. Which that's all too familiar, isn't it? It's all too familiar when good things get in the way of the gospel. We can think very quickly about how this happens in the home and very quickly about how this happens in the church. Myriad ways, one example. In the home, so many good things in the morning, so many good things in the evening, you don't have time for the one necessary thing. We get wrapped up at church sometimes in, in this respect, serving the church. Serving, 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 serving. That So many good things that we lose sight of the one necessary thing. And it even happens in worship, where our worship is all about my praise and, and my prayer and my giving glory to God and all these good things, and suddenly we're missing the one necessary thing. We're missing Jesus and his word, and we're missing this, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. That's the center. That's what Martha on that day missed. Jesus had not come to be served by Martha. He had come to serve her. It's true in our homes. It's true in our church. Jesus does not come to be served by us. Well and good when we do, but that's not the one thing necessary. Jesus has not come to be served, but to serve. That is the one thing necessary. And how does he serve? When he speaks. When he forgives us when he forgives us for all our busyness that has crowded him out. <laughs> what do we Orange Countyans boast in? Not really our good works, but, oh, I'm so busy. How busy are you? Not nearly as busy as me. <laughs> it's pathological. We have to repent of our busyness. Now, not, not repent of a full schedule per se, but repent of a busyness that pushes out the one thing necessary. 
And in receiving that one thing necessary, Jesus who has come to serve us, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. What, what Paul is getting at in Colossians, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death. What does that mean? That means that all our sins, from the great, big, dark, ugly ones we'd be mortified if anyone knew, those have all been nailed to the cross in the flesh of Jesus. He's forgiven them. But then also those little sins we don't think they matter, which are especially deadly precisely because we don't think they matter, all of those are nailed to the cross in his flesh, and he forgives them. And what about that service and those good works for Jesus and those people around us that because they crowd out Jesus cease to be good works? Well, he forgives those too. So great is his mercy on us. He forgives us, and yet he loves us enough to admonish us. So if you found yourself being anxious and troubled about many things, or saying in your own mouth that refrain of Martha, I'm doing it all by myself. Then you need to remember the one thing necessary. Jesus has not come to be served by you, but to serve you. Not only to forgive you, which he does amply and fully, but to admonish you and correct you, eyes back where it matters, on me and on my word. The scriptures call him the pastor and bishop of our souls. He dies to take away our sins, but he rises to be the pastor and bishop of our souls. So that when he speaks his holy absolution to us, it is a present tense word of the present Christ that sets our hearts free. It creates in us clean hearts and renews in us right spirits. He forgives us, he admonishes us, he renews us. Why? so that we may sit at his feet now and for all eternity. After all, that's the point of forgiveness, that we may see Jesus face to face, that we may hear his word. That's heaven. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away, away from her. And if that's how Jesus leaves it, I'll leave it there too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.